to a special episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is how to add value at a time when it's needed most, a conversation with speaker and co-author of the Go-Giver series, Bob Berg. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you're not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. And if you find the content in this episode or any others in our series to be useful and know others who could benefit as well, I would love for you to share it with them. We are recording this episode during an unprecedented time in the midst of a global health crisis, the financial and emotional impact of which is still unfolding. We know that advisors are on the financial front lines, drinking from a fire hose, balancing communication with clients, and processing an abundance of information from their firms and the media. My commitment to you is simple, and quite honestly, no different than it was before the coronavirus pandemic. And that commitment is to add value wherever and whenever I can. To that end, I am joined today by Bob Berg, the author of a series of books that many business leaders and entrepreneurs consider required reading. The Go-Giver, co-authored by John David Mann, itself has sold nearly a million copies, and it's been translated into 28 languages and was the basis for an entire series of books and seminars that take the concepts even further. But to me, Bob is a rock star. Some 22 years ago, a friend suggested the original Go-Giver book to me, and it literally changed my world. It set the foundation and tone for the approach of which Diamond Consultants was built upon and continues to influence all that we do. That approach is rooted in the belief that it's our job to objectively educate every advisor we connect with without agenda or expectation. For me, Bob's book filled a gap that I felt existed in the early days in my career as a recruiter. It revealed to me that the smile and dial transactional approach, which headhunters are typically known for, was the antithesis of what I felt financial advisors needed and deserved. I knew there had to be a better way to share perspective and add value. And the story of Joe as told in the Go-Giver series confirmed a belief that existed in me and helped to forever evolve my interactions in both business and my personal life. Given the state of the business climate right now, adding value wherever we can is even more vital than ever before. So I thought there was no better way for me to add value for our listening audience than to welcome one of the world's foremost authorities on doing so. I am thrilled that Bob was available on short notice to join me on this show, and he has lots of tips and sage advice to share. So let's get to it. Bob, thank you so very much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure, Mindy. Great to be with you. I'd love for you to tell us about yourself, if you would. Well, really began as a broadcaster. I was first in, in radio doing sports, and then I was the late night news guy for a, a very, very small ABC television affiliate in the Midwest, Midwestern United States. Was not 
very good at it. Uh, I could read the news. That wasn't an issue, but I, I just was not a journalist. So it, it wasn't long before I found myself not being the late night news guy for a small ABC affiliate in the Midwest. And I'd like to say I graduated into sales. The challenge I had was that I knew nothing about sales, not on a formal level. And the uh, the training at the company where I was working, we'll just say that their training was negligible <laughs> at best. So I really floundered for the first few months. I had no idea what I was doing. And, and fortunately, at that time, I went into a bookstore. And uh, again, this is 40 years ago, I guess back when bookstores were more known for selling books than, than coffee and pastries and so forth. And there were a couple books there. One was by Tom Hopkins called How to Master the Art of Selling. And there was another book by Zig Ziglar, which I bought. And those two turned out to be just great at that time. Virtual mentors, I guess you could say through their their books. But just the title of Tom's book, How to Master the Art of Selling, really encouraged me because I didn't know there was an art to selling. I had no idea any of this even existed. So I remember taking their books home and studying them. And I mean, just really, really immersing myself in them. And within a few weeks, my sales began to go through the roof. And what that told me was that if you have a a methodology, a system for doing something, there's no reason why you can't accomplish it. To this day, I personally define a system as simply the process of predictably achieving a goal based on a logical and specific set of how-to principles, the key being predictability. In other words, if it's been proven that by doing A, you'll get the end results of B, then you know that all you need to do is A and continue to do A and continue to do A, and eventually you'll get the desired results of, of B. And that, you know, that really began my journey into sales and personal development. I started getting all the books and, and uh, at that time, tapes, right? Cassette tapes, <laughs> cassette tape albums, as they were called at the time. And that's how far in the past this this was. And really began to see that sales was really more about developing internally. And that success would manifest itself outwardly. So I began getting all the books that probably everyone listening has on their bookshelf. Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People and Think and Grow Rich, The Magic of Thinking Big, Psycho-Cybernetics, all the, the great ones. It was really a fantastic journey. Okay. And then eventually you wrote Go-Givers, the Go-Givers series. So we'll come back to the genesis of that and how you went from being a successful salesperson to, to being the author of this se- amazing series. But could you just share with us briefly, what is the Go-Giver philosophy? Yeah. And that's a great question. It, it basically comes down to this. It's a very simple premise. And that is shifting your focus. And this is really the key, shifting your focus from getting to giving. And when we say giving in this context, we simply mean constantly and consistently providing immense value to others. Understanding that doing this is not only a a more fulfilling way to do business, it's actually the most financially profitable way as well. And not for any kind of way out there, woo-woo kind of reasons. No, it's actually very logical. It's very rational because when you think about it, when you're that person who moves from a focus on yourself to a focus on making other people's lives better, 
okay? People feel good about you. People want to get to know you. They, they begin to like you. They begin to trust you. They're much more likely to want to be a part of your life. You know, it's interesting. Whenever I, I speak at a sales conference, I'll often begin by saying something like, nobody's going to buy from you. We could say with advisors, no one's going to invest with you because you have a quota to meet, right? They're not going to invest with you because you need the money. And they're not even going to invest with you because you're a really, really nice person who believes in what you do. No, they're going to do business with you. They're going to invest with you because they believe that they will be better off by doing so than by not doing so. And really, that's the only reason why anyone should buy from or invest with you or me or, or, or anyone else. And the neat thing about that is it means that that advisor who really can shift their focus, who can really make everything about the other person, that's the one who's much more likely to attain the business. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And how about a quickie review of the five laws you and John share in the books? Sure. The five laws themselves are the laws of value, compensation, influence, authenticity, and receptivity. Law number one, the law of value, which is really the foundational principle. This one says your true worth in the business sense, of course, your, your true worth is determined by how much more you give in value than you take in payment. Now, when you first hear this, it, it, it sounds a little counterintuitive. I mean, give more in value than I take in payment. I mean, how am I supposed to survive in my business? Never mind thrive give more in value than I take in payment sounds like a recipe for bankruptcy. So we simply have to understand the difference between price and value. Price is a dollar figure. It's a dollar amount. It's finite. It is what it is. Value, on the other hand, is the relative worth or desirability of a thing, of something to the end user or beholder. In other words, what is it about this thing, this product, service, concept, idea, what have you, that brings so much worth or value to someone that they will willingly uh, exchange their, whether money, time, opportunity cost, you know, what have you, and be, be glad, uh, be ecstatic that they did. I mean, on a, on a very basic level, just on an intrinsic level, as an advisor, what you do is you're, you're what? You're helping someone create and build a sound financial future, helping them to feel good about themselves and secure in what they're doing, making sure that they have income in their retirement, that they're able to pass along a, a legacy to their children and or specific causes that they're able to live a, a healthy retirement, you know, all the different things, whatever that you do. It, it's wonderful value. You do this in exchange for whether it's whether you're fee or commission based, regardless, you're giving much more in value to that person than what you're receiving. And you're still making a very, very healthy profit, which you should, but you're giving more in value than you take in payment. And really that's the, you know, that's the key. Now, this, of course, is just on a very intrinsic level based on the very nature of what you do, but, and that's good, but it's not enough, right? Because every other advisor is basically promising that person the same thing. And let's face it, if a prospective client uh, cannot distinguish between any two or more investors, well, it's always going to come down to, to what? Who has the lowest 
fee. And that's, you know, if you're an advisor trying to make low fee or unique selling proposition, right, with, with quotation marks around that, that uh, term, it is simply not a good way to do business. It's not productive, it's not profitable, and it's certainly not, not sustainable. And so the question becomes, well, how do I communicate this additional value uh, since really I am working within a commodity uh, base? And really, to do this, you become that additional value. This is the key. You become that additional value. Now, so how? Well, the, the good news is there are dozens, if not hundreds of ways to communicate that additional value, but they tend to come down to five what we call elements of value. And those five elements of value are excellence, consistency, attention, empathy, and appreciation. And while we could go into detail on, on each and every one of those, basically I'll just say that to the degree that you are able to communicate one or more, hopefully all five of those at every single touch point, whether you're talking about someone you've just met at you know, a local charity event or the, the, the some local event or maybe uh, an inbound prospect or someone you've reached out to uh, through the relationship building process, through the follow-up and follow-through, through the sales process, through the referral process, to the degree you're able to communicate those five elements of value, that's really the degree that you take both fee and your competition out of the picture. Yeah. And that's really what the law of value is all about. Now, the other four, Mindy, I can go through much quicker than that. <laughs> well, let me just say one thing before you do. I appreciate that because as I've shared in my intro to you, your philosophy changed my world. And I call it gratuitous education. That's just my, where I share my knowledge and perspective that advisors may not be aware of without agenda or expectation. and. I all, my only goal is to add value, not to make a sale, not to ever convince somebody to move. If they happen to want to move, that's great. And if they don't, I'm equally thrilled. And that approach has served me incredibly well for the last 23 years. So I'm here to tell you it's not just sort of a uh, pipe dream, but it really works in reality. But yeah, if you could run through the other four, that would be amazing. Sure. So the first was the law of value. The second law is the law of compensation. This one says your income is determined by how many people you serve and how well you serve them. So where law number one says to give more in value than you take in payment. Law number two tells us that the more people whose lives you touch with the exceptional value you provide, the more money with which you'll be rewarded. Uh, and obviously, re your referred prospects are just the greatest way to accomplish that. Law number three is the law of influence. And the law of influence says your influence is determined by how abundantly you place other people's interests first. Uh, again, it sounds sort of counterintuitive, but then you think about the greatest leaders, top influencers, the highest producing advisors you know. This is simply how they run their lives and conduct their businesses. They're always looking for ways to bring immense value to others, even putting the other person's interests before their own. Now, let me qualify that, if I may. When we say place the other person's interests first, we certainly don't mean you should be anyone's doormat or a martyr or self-sacrificial in any way. Absolutely not at all. It's just that as, as Joe, the protege in the story, learned from several of the mentors, the golden rule of, of business, of sales, is simply that all things being equal, people will do business with and refer business to those people they know, like, and trust. 
And there's no faster, more powerful, or more effective way to elicit those feelings toward you from others than by genuinely and authentically moving from that I focus or me focus to that other focus, looking to, as Sam, one of the mentors in the story told Joe, to make your win all about the other person's win. Law number four is the law of authenticity, which simply says that the most valuable gift you have to offer is yourself. Uh, in this chapter, the, the mentor in that part, whose name was Deborah Davenport, learned a, or shared a very important lesson she learned in her career, and that is that all the skills in the world, the sales skills, technical skills, people skills, as important as they all are, and, and indeed, they are all very, very important, they're also all for not if you don't come at it from your true, authentic core. But when you do, when you show up, as we like to say, as yourself, day after day, week after week, month after month, people feel good about you. They feel comfortable with you. They feel safe with you. They begin to know you, to like you, to love you, to trust you, to want to be in relationship with you, and to want to refer you to others, to be your personal walking ambassador. So, you know, being able to recognize our strengths and show up authentically is really just such a, a major, major part of the equation. And then law number five is the law of receptivity. And if, if law number one, the law of value is what is the foundational principle, law number five, the law of receptivity is really what brings it all home. Uh, this law says that the key to effective giving is to stay open to receiving. And this really means that just like breathing out and breathing in, right? You, you don't just do one, right? You don't do, do one or the other. You've got to do both in order to thrive, in order to just sustain life. We breathe out carbon dioxide and we breathe in oxygen. We breathe out, which is giving. We breathe in, which is receiving. and Counter to the, the uh, messages we get from the world around us about prosperity, about money, about business itself, and, you know, the messages we get from the world around us, from the media to, you know, schools to what have you, they're not mixed messages. They're very negative messages about money. And we hear these, many hear these from the time they're born, you know, family, upbringing, environment, schooling, news media, television shows, movies, the, the horrible messages about money. It goes into our heads on a very unconscious level. And this can really sabotage people from enjoying the type of success that they've earned, that they deserve. And really, you know, what we say is that money is an echo of value. Money is an echo of value. It's the thunder to values lightning, which means that to the degree that you, you, know, that you focus on bringing value to other human beings, focus on bringing value to the marketplace, that is what uh, you know, causes that money to come to you in the form of commissions, fees, what have you. So we need to allow ourselves not only to bring immense value to the lives of many people, placing their interests first, doing it authentically, we also need, our, need to allow ourselves to receive in like measure. So thank you for that. I mean, you're, you're adding value to all of us just by sharing this amazing philosophy. So let me switch gears. We're recording this in the midst of a global pandemic and market 
volatility, unlike what we've seen before. So we've chosen to do this interview now because we felt there would never be a greater need for us, for anyone to add value than in the midst of this unprecedented crisis. So with that in mind, if you were writing Go-Givers today, how would you advise all of us, financial advisors or otherwise, to utilize your approach? Well, the book would be written in the same way because the, the you know the book is first of all just it's principle based, so the, these things don't change. Uh, and I certainly don't don't think we're going to be in this situation forever. So the the book would be written the same way. If it was a matter of of you know what do you as an advisor do now that uh, that we're we're going through this? I mean, you know, what I would probably suggest is now is a time to focus on your clientele in terms of communication, because I think you have a lot of people, you know, I mean, basically we, we know anyone who even on a service level has studied any kind of finance or investing, it's, you know, don't touch your, you know, IRO or SEP, you know, just let things go. Don't try to, you know, don't panic. Don't this, don't that. But you know what? Many of your clients don't, and I'm talking to the people who are the advisors, many of your clients don't know this. Or even though logically they know this, we know that people are pretty emotion driven. And so I think at this point, the best thing to do is to bring value to them simply through communication, not not through an email. Okay, I mean, that's fine. And and there's no reason not to email with updates and so forth. But pick up that phone and call that person and let that person know you're there for them. You know, remind them of the fundamentals of just understanding that once this is over, it's going to come back again. It always does and so forth. But don't assume they already know this and don't assume that their logical mind is going to be in control of their emotional mind. Got it. And let me ask you another question relevant to this timing. So advisors are on the financial front lines right now in this crisis. And most tell us that they feel like they're drinking from a fire hose, trying to balance communication with clients and adding value and absorbing massive amounts of information from their firms, from the media, et cetera. And first and foremost, trying to keep themselves and their families safe. So why is this conversation even relevant right now? Well, it's relevant because it's happening. And I think that successful people deal in truths and they don't necessarily just see things as they'd like it to be. They they do. And and that's how we make changes by seeing things as we'd like them to be. But we begin by seeing them as they are, just as the person who, you know, the people who invented flight didn't say, well, you know what, this gravity thing gets in the way. And so I'm just going to deny there's gravity and I'm going to, you know, put a contraption together and jump off a cliff and, and fly because oh, I'm just not going to let gravity, you know, I'm not going to deal with that. Well, that would be crazy, right? Because that's not real world. That's not truth. Gravity exists. So what they did instead was they studied the laws of gravity, of aerodynamics, of physics and so forth. And they they put together a machine that through how, however it worked, its resistance and so forth and so on, it was able to fly. Okay, so, you know, before we can make positive changes, we've got to acknowledge what is. Once we acknowledge that, now we have a choice. We can say, oh, you know, woe is me, woe is us. There's nothing I can do about this. And that's how it is. And, And, you know, gloom and doom. Or we can say, you know what, we're in a situation right now. It's certainly not a fun situation. In fact, it really stinks. And I'm going to take the precautions that that we know we should take. 
and look at how I can bring value to others, whether it's through, again, communication and reach out to my clients or even making sure the person, the elderly person down the street that we check in and make sure he or she is okay and has enough food and may need something when we go shopping or, or whatever. All the things we can possibly do to make the best of the situation, uh, again, realizing what it is and at the same time, doing all we can in terms of positive action to control what we can. Yeah, I love that. Um, we're all... I guess many advisors would naturally ask, how can I increase my annual production and ultimately make more money? And you might say, that's not a bad question. In fact, it's a great question. It's just a bad first question. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Uh, I, uh, I love that because that was that was a, a conversation in the story where Pindar, the main mentor, was with, with Joe. And, and as Joe was talking about you know, a focus on, wow, this can make a, you know, killing, this can make a ton of money. And, and uh, Pindar sort of took him to task on that a, a, a little bit. And, and Joe said, so are you saying asking if something will make money isn't a good question? And, and as you said, you know, Pindar said, no, asking if something will make money is a great question. It's just a bad first question. Well, what does that really mean? Again, it goes back to, to focus and it's understanding real life and human nature. If you ask, will it make money, you're, you're kind of putting the cart before the horse. First, you have to ask, will it bring value? Will it serve? Uh, or we could say, is there a market for it? Does one exist or is there one I can reasonably create? Okay, if we want to get very, uh, uh, you know, surface level on it. But first, will it, will it serve? Is there, is there a market? Because if there's not a market, uh, well, it it's, doesn't matter. It's not going to make money because no one's going to buy it in the first place. So first, focus on will it serve? Now, will it serve? Is there a market? Will people buy it? Okay, yes. Now, we also have to ask, will it make money? Because there could be a great market for it. Everyone could love it. But if it's not profitable, well, now you've got a hobby. And while there's certainly nothing wrong with hobbies, I recommend them. It's not the same as having a business. So both are important, but again, it's where you place your focus. If you place your focus on, will it bring value to others now? And the answer is yes. Now you can ask, now you can very legitimately ask, will it make money? So let me ask you a question. Our audience consists of both advisors that are independent business owners and the choice of where they put their focus and how they conduct their lives, their business lives is completely up to them. But a good percentage of our audience are advisors that are employees at brokerage firms of all sizes, whether it be wirehouses like Morgan and Merrill and UBS and Wells or regional firms or smaller firms. And those that are employees don't live in a world where they're calling all the shots. They don't have total control about the decisions they make and how they conduct themselves and the things they can say to clients. So what would your message be if you are an employee advisor who needs to be managed by compliance and by the rules and mandates and the quotas and goals that your firms put forth? How do you shift your focus? How do you operate within that confine and still focus on adding value? Okay, well, first, you know, remember, there's nothing wrong with having goals and, and you know, even quotas. It's just understanding that no one's going to buy from you based on your goals or your quotas. 
And that's why regardless of those goals and quotas, that can't be the focus. The focus has got to be on that person with whom you'd like to do business and, and have as a referral source. So it, it's not a matter of an either or, it's, it's a matter of, of where your focus is. You know, the person who is an employee within, within a, another company, well, if they're selling, they're still, you know, they're still selling, they're still an entrepreneur. It's just that they have different rules and regulations that they have to, uh, they have to deal with as aside from the more independent one who still has a lot of rules and regulations because it's very highly regulated, but it's just a matter of different limits. But I think what it goes to, and I think what really the, the question comes down to, Mindy, is how much are you willing to bend from your values in a sense in order to to do things in a way that you might not that someone else wants you to okay and that was sort of a roundabout way of saying you know how much are you willing to take orders from someone else and i think that's a question we all you know we all have to deal with obviously if the company you're working with is asking you to do things that are not legal ethical or moral well no there's there's no reason you'd stay with them but there's uh, in fact you'd leave as fast as you could but they may there may be certain r- rules and regulations um, and means of doing things within their structure that you need to put up with because the benefits of doing so are well worth it to you and in many other ways you might love your employment there. So I think it really comes down to what you're, what you're comfortable doing, how you, uh, how you enjoy the process. So, you know, some people who are on their own, there's just no way they could work within a, within a, a corporate structure like that. So that's an incredibly smart comment. And it's exactly what we tell advisors all the time. One of the biggest things, the drivers for movement is a sense of incongruence where a firm's values or the mandates the firm puts forth as a result of the firm's value and goals become incongruent at times with the goals or values of the advisor. And that is when the advisor needs to decide, I like how you put it, how much are you willing to bend from your values? So a lot of that has to do with what those values are and what those mandates are. So one of the mandates I'm talking about might be a firm that says your payout as an advisor is directly related to how much you refer business to other areas of the bank, i.e. lending. And there are many advisors that feel offended by that. They have no, they like the idea of being able to offer lending, for example, to their clients. They just don't want to be told to do so if it's not necessarily in the best interest of their clients. How would you respond to that? Oh, well, what you just said at the end was the, the most important part. If it's not in the best interest of their clients, uh, then they absolutely should not. But here's here's what a company, here's what company leadership, if they were going to do this correctly and create the proper environment would do. They would make sure that the relationships between those in different areas, branches, services, and so forth, they would make sure these relationships have a chance to bloom and blossom. Because if you're going to refer a client to another area of the company, well, what's the most important part that you know, like, and trust the human being you're referring them to? So, you know, so how does, how does leadership go about? Well, they create that environment. They make sure that this is something that can happen, that this is something that can, they can play. They, they facilitate that. Yeah. We hope that that would be true. Right. And it often often isn't. I'm just saying (laughs) that if they were to play it correctly, it would be that that is the way to do it. Then it goes back to this person you're talking about who doesn't want to be told to do this when 
uh, first, they just may not want to be told to do it. But, you know, part of working for someone else is there's certain things you're going to be told to do. But that maybe you can deal with. What you can't deal with is doing something that you don't absolutely believe is for the best interest of your client. That's a non-negotiable. And the, the chances are, unless that relationship is there, you know, unless that trust is there, it's probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Let me switch gears for a second. I know you talked before about the five principles in the book, and one of them is influence. How does a go-giver create influence both personally and in business? And how does that directly relate to new business and even to leadership? Sure. Well, first, let's let's look at influence on on two levels, one very surface, and then we'll bring it out a little more um, and really get to the heart of it. On a basic level, we can define influence as simply the ability to move a person or persons to a desired action, usually within the context of a specific goal. By definition, that's that's influence. Now, that's its definition, but it's not its its substance or its essence. The essence of influence is pull. Pull as opposed to push, as in the age-old saying, how far can you push a rope? And we know the answer is not very far, at least not very fast or very effectively, which is why great influencers don't, don't push. You rarely hear, in fact, I'd say you never hear people say, wow, that Joe or that Mary, she is so influential. She has a lot of push with people. No, they'd say she's influential. She has a lot of pull with people because that's what influence is. It's pull. It's an attraction. Great influencers attract people first to themselves and then to their ideas. So now the question is, how do you do that? How do you pull? This is where that other focus that we talk about, and this is where when we talk about the law of influence, about uh, placing other people's interests first. See, a great influencer takes to heart what I believe was the was the underlying premise in Dale Carnegie's classic, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And this is where he wrote that ultimately people do things for their reasons, not our reasons. So the great influencer, what we call the genuine influencer, first questions themselves to make sure they're facing in the right direction. So the genuine influencer asks themselves, how does what I'm asking this person to do, how does it align with their goals, with their wants, their needs, their desires? How does what I'm asking this other person to do, how does it align with their values? What problems am I helping them to solve? How am I making their life easier, better, more fulfilling? And when we ask ourselves these questions thoughtfully, intelligently, genuinely, uh, authentically, not as a way to manipulate another human being into doing our will, but as a way of building everyone in the process, now we've come a lot closer to earning that person's commitment rather than trying to depend on some type of compliance. And that's really how pull helps us influence. Mm, I love that. Um, Bob, are there misconceptions about what being a go-giver is? I mean, the name itself almost implies that you give constantly. Can someone be taken advantage of that way? And I guess what I mean by that, how does someone say no 
in the, in the if you're focusing on adding value, how does a go giver feel comfortable saying no, thank you, or no, I don't want to do that? So there are a few excellent questions within that. So let's first look at are there misperceptions or misconceptions about what a go giver is? I, I think before someone reads the book, there probably is because they see a title like the go giver and they think, yeah, you're just giving yourself away, right? Or or not making a profit, where of course, as a go-giver, you typically make a much larger profit than most others because you're selling on high value as opposed to low price. So that's certainly one misconception. Another is that, you know, you're just at people's beck and call that you never say no. No, as a go-giver, you're probably very successful and, and very profitable. And you've got people asking you to do things all the time. And while you'd love to be able to help everyone and, and say yes to everyone, well, the fact is you can't. So no, a go-giver is actually going to say no far more often than they say yes, but a go-giver will do it in such a way that they make the other person feel genuinely good about themselves, about the situation, and about you. You know, let, let, let's look at one way this might manifest itself. And we'll, as a, a very successful financial advisor, you're going to be asked to serve on many boards, let's say, uh, you know, many committees. And let's say you're asked to serve on a committee and for whatever reason it is, it's just not something that you want to do. And so, you know, again, there's nothing about being a, a go-giver that means you're self-sacrificial or martyrish, right? Yeah. And let's go back to that being taken advantage of. No, there's nothing about being a go-giver that is congruent with being taken advantage of, right? If you're finding yourself in a pattern of being taken advantage of, and again, as human beings, that sometime or other, we're gonna be, but I'm, I'm, I'm talking about if it's a pattern, right? If you find yourself constantly being taken advantage of, it's not because you're a nice person or because you're a go-giver or anything like it. No, it's because you're doing things in such a way that you are allowing yourself to be taken advantage of. Don't do that. And so please feel secure in the knowledge that no, that, that has nothing to do with, with anything. Well, I think it comes down to authenticity, right? I mean, if you are authentic and true to yourself, an authentic person can authentically and honestly say, no, that doesn't fit with my goals or my time frame right now without creating ill will. Yeah, exactly. So let's say, and let me provide some really simple language for being able to say no in a way that will actually make you look even better and really be in alignment with your, your values. Again, somebody asks you to serve on a committee uh, that you don't want to. I've often heard it said over the last few years, this has become very politically correct, that no is a complete sentence. And, you know, I see people hearing that at a seminar and they write it down and they feel all empowered and everything. And, and the question I want to ask, but never would, because I'd never want to call someone else out. But, you know, Mike, was it, really, is that what you're going to do? It, is no really a complete sentence or a complete answer? I don't think so. First, it's it's rude. <laughs> you know, imagine somebody asks you to serve on a committee, which is a compliment, and you just say no. No. So, so we know, and also it's going to shut the door on that person asking you to do anything else, which you may want to leave that door open, but really the reason you're not going to say no like that is because it's, it's not congruent with your value system of respecting other people. So that's not the, the, the way. Now I've also heard people say, well, just tell people a little, you know, kind of white lie. Well, I, I don't have time. Well, there are a couple of problems with that. One is that it's not that you don't have time. It's that you don't value doing that thing as much as you value not doing that thing. 
And so, you know, as human beings, we may, as business people, we make time. We don't have time. We make times to do those things we feel is of, of value to do. And what you've done, though, is you've set yourself up for this person to answer you, answer that objection. And when they do so in a compelling way that shows you that time is not an issue, now you've either got to kind of come clean and admit that you were fibbing because you don't want to do it, which is going to make you look bad and it's going to make you feel bad. Or in order to save face, you've got to now accept that assignment, that committee that you just don't want to do. So, again, I, I don't think that's a good way to do it. Here's an easy way. It's simple, it respects the other person, and it respects your boundaries. When they ask you to serve in the committee, you simply say, thank you so much. While it's not something I'd like to do, please know how deeply honored I am just to be asked. I love it. I think that's helpful advice for all of us. Yeah, you haven't given them a, a something, a hook to hang on to and answer. You've basically just let them know how grateful you are, how honored you are. And at the same time, you've let them gently and respectfully know that the, the answer is no. And authentically. I mean, that's. I think that that's really the key. Yeah. <laughs> let me ask you a question. You talk in the book about how you don't need to be an entrepreneur to be entrepreneurial. And that resonates with our listening audience because, again, some of them are entrepreneurs because they're business owners and some of them are employee-based advisors. But to what extent does being entrepreneurial play into all of this in the ability to be a go-giver and live by its approach? Well, whether someone's an entrepreneur and they have their own company or they're an intrapreneur because they're working within someone else's company, the key is you still need to provide immense value to others, to your customers. Now, when you're an entrepreneur, when you're a an employee, well, your end customer, end user, end client may or may not be the the actual customer, but it may be those people within your the organization that you are there to add value to. You need to bring immense value to your supervisor or the uh, obviously the owner of the company, and and again, eventually it, it it goes to whether directly or indirectly to the the end user. The key is just like when we said no one's going to invest with you because you need the money, no one's going to hire and keep you in their employ because you have a mortgage to meet. It's always going to be because they believe that the value you're providing them is even more than the cash value that and other benefits that they are paying. So again, whether you're an entrepreneur or an intrapreneur, your goal is to make yourself as valuable to your market as possible. Regardless of how and where you practice. I love it. Let me, I want to back way up. So the genesis of all of this, you told me offline that it was one golden nugget of advice from a drive-by mentor that totally shifted your perspective and played a big role, not only in your success, but the Go-Giver series itself. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. And and this is a couple of years, Mindy, after I was in sales and I was, you know, I was reasonably successful. Okay. I mean, by, by most people's standards, I was a good salesperson. I was making good money, but you know, I was very much like Joe in the story uh, where I, I just was not realizing my potential. And I didn't realize that the issue was 
me. <laughs> and one day I came, I, I was selling a, a you know a high-end uh, product for a, a company. And I came back from a non-selling appointment. Now it was not a non-selling appointment by design. It was supposed to be a selling appointment, but because of my own mishandling of it, a person who really should have bought and would have benefited greatly from the product said no. And when I was back in the office, I must have had a, a look of disgust, self-disgust on my face. And there was an older gentleman who, who came over. Now, he was not in the sales department. I think he was an engineer or something. And he wasn't someone I knew particularly well. He was a nice guy, pleasant guy. But he was one of these people who, and I, I'm sure we've all met someone like this, he didn't say much, but whenever he did say something, it was always profound. And I think he he sort of saw me like Joe in the story as that person who had lots of potential, but was holding himself back. And he said to me, can I give you some advice? And I, I said, sure, absolutely, please do. And he said, Berg, if you want to make a lot of money in sales, he said, don't have making money as your target. Your target is serving others. Now, when you hit the target, he said, you'll get a reward and that reward will come in the form of money and you can do with that money whatever you choose. But never forget, the money is simply the reward for hitting the target. It ain't the target itself. Your target is serving others. And that was my epiphany. That's when it occurred to me that great salesmanship is never a about the salesperson. Great salesmanship is never even about the product or the service, as important as that is. Great salesmanship is about recognizing that it's all about the other person, that person whose life you're trying to touch, make better, improve through your product or service. Mm, I love it. One last question, because for me, this is just about as inspirational at a tough time as it gets. In fact, it's incredibly refreshing, Bob, to have a conversation about something other than health and financial crises for now. But if you could leave everyone with one single message that they can share with others, that they can pass on and add value to others, what would it be? Well, I, I think if we're if we're going to to attach it to this time that we had that we're in right now that we're we're going through i think it's to as, as much as you possibly can really take the focus off of yourself uh, you know as much as possible and that can be difficult when there's a when we're going through a difficult time it, it's it's human nature to place even more focus on ourselves and yet to the degree we can focus on helping others that's the degree that not only we're going to add more to our world, but we're going to feel better ourselves. And when we feel better, we're more able to take action. We're more able to take effective action. So I think if we can do that, and again, it, it may be, as we talked about earlier, reaching out and just communicate. I heard someone say, over-communicate with your client. I don't think you can over-communicate with your, with your client unless they just don't want to hear from you. <laughs> you know? So I think that's always an individual thing. But communicate to the degree, but also communicate with your family right now. Uh, I was talking to somebody who, who said, you know, for the first time in a long time, their family's all going to be together in their home. And they're going to make it a point to really relearn to communicate with one another. 
And again, it can also be that the the elderly neighbor down the street. So intrinsic motivation, absolutely, but outward value to others and outward focus. I love it. Bob, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Incredibly sage words of wisdom that changed my world and I'm grateful and I uh, am going to urge others to, if they are not familiar with the series, bought the books, heard you speak, anything, any of the above, I will definitely encourage them to do so. In fact, Bob, would you like to, is there a website or something that someone can visit if they want to get more information on, uh, on what you're doing and your philosophy? Yeah, best place to go to is just Berg, B-U-R-G dot com. If they look under books, they can go to any of the books in the Go-Giver series, as well as some of my others, get the first chapter, see if they like it. And if they scroll down to the uh, blog, I've got a couple of video series out there. One is on endless referrals, the Go-Giver way. The other is influence and success insights, which is really on people skills and communication skills. So lots of information there. So sure, just Berg.com is fine. Great. Bob, thank you so much. We wish you only the best. And in this time, stay healthy and well more than anything. Oh, likewise. My pleasure. And and thank you for all you do, Mindy. You bet. The Go-Giver philosophy was a game changer for me. And I'm sure to the millions of others who are fans of the series. And if you haven't read any of the books from the Go-Giver series, I'd encourage you to do so. At this chaotic and uncertain time, Bob's perspective has taken on even greater importance. One of my favorite quotes of his was, no one will invest with you because you have a quota to make. That sums up what many advisors find as problematic, an incongruence between what they believe is the best way to serve clients and the things their firms want them to do in order to maximize compensation. I thank you for listening. And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to this series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. As always, feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please know that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank AdvisorHub.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.